You're listening to Medicine for the Resistance. Anyway, so we're here with uh, Kyolo Fox. Tanda had made this comment quoting you about the land is my ancestor. And that is a scientific statement. And she was just completely taken by that comment. And then so was I. And that's really all I've been thinking about (laughs) because it's just such a... It's just such a neat way of thinking and understanding our relationship with the other than human world and our connection to place and all of that. And so, yeah, so now I'm gonna let you introduce yourself and what you mean by that phrase when you say the land is our ancestor. Raja that. Aloha everybody, my name is Kate Olu Fox and my mo'oku auhau or my genealogical connection or origin is to the Kohala Ahupua'a, which is the northernmost district of the big island of Hawaii. And I'm joining you from Kumiai Nation here in La Jolla. And it's a beautiful day. It's always a beautiful day here. But um, I'm a genome scientist. I focus on all kinds of things. And mostly... I have been really thinking about that idea. And I've been centering around that idea for a little bit because many of you know, there've been a lot of things going on uh, where we live, where we're from on the big island right Right now. um, Our volcano is active and Pele is letting her hair down. Um, But we have another very sacred place and that's Mauna Awakea, Mauna Kea, right? There've been all of these protests and this, this tension that's kind of like played out in a lot of different ways because we have a problem with settler colonialism. <clears throat> and we have scientists who would rather seek authorization um, instead, of, instead of consensus building and take care yeah. to actually ask our people what we want. <clears throat> and so uh, I thought about this idea of like, what is actually shaping our genomes over time, right? We always uh, have these comments about our our genealogical connection to the Aina, right? The, the Aina, like one of my favorite Hawaiian scholars uh, who's a medical doctor, his name's Amit Aluli, is always saying, the health of the land is the health of the people and the health of the people is the health of the land. And when you think about that historically, it's actually the same thing. So what our community is saying about, hey, why do you need to dig four stories into the earth? into this Aina, you know, not only are our ancestors buried there and their fresh water aquifers and there's, it's a very sacred place for cultural protocol, but it's also our ancestor. And so I think that gets lost to a lot of my Western colleagues with a certain worldview. They're, they're willing to accept the idea that, you know, natural selection and Charles Darwin and these finches on these islands have been shaped by this different geography, but they're not willing to accept it in terms of humans because they're human exceptionalists. So from our point of view, it's like, we are the Mauna, the Mauna is us. It really has shaped our, our genomes. So has the ebb and flow of the Moana, the ocean. So has high elevation in the Himalayas. So in that sense, you know, I think indigenous people have it right because we have not really completely separated ourselves from the Aina. That's why mm-hmm. we believe in sustainability. 
we, you know, indigeneity is sustainability. Like it's the, it's synonymous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I could give you a bunch of examples, but I think, I think that idea is really powerful because it allows you to like, with just complete fluidity, connect all of these really important ideas around natural selection and evolution and also indigenous epistemology. And if you look historically too, at like the ways we talk about biological complexity in the Kumulipo, which is a, a ancient origin chant, which was famously translated by Queen Liliuokalani. And you'll see that like, if you look at where this, this, this uh, story starts, this chant, this pule, where it begins is with like darkness. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we get into single celled organisms, slime molds, and then we build up the complexity you see over time. Um, and uh, and I'm not like an authority scholar on that, but I think it's so important that it's not it's not wrong at all. You know, in fact, it was right before maybe somebody like Charles Darwin had put it together in English. So I think that's a really important idea. And the ways that we think about evolution and natural selection and our relationship to the Aina is really important. Yeah, I'm reading right now, where is it? So I always have like so many books close to me. Salmon and acorns feed our people. And early on in the book, she kind of makes a, a very similar point because she's talking about the Kuruk people in Northern California. And the interconnectedness of, of the salmon and the water and the people and the geography and you know and how we impact the environment and the environment impacts them and it goes you, you know and everything just kind of keeps weaving weaving back and forth it, it and i think you're right i mean in that connection that we have that is indigeneity, you know, kind of that ma maintaining that connection and but now i you know and as we talk about that i you know i'm looking at carrie who's part of the, you know, the African diaspora, who maybe doesn't know, you know, kind of, she talks about, you know, connection with Ghana, but not, I'm gonna let you talk about that. After you turn your mic on, I'm gonna let you talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Today I learned from AW Pete to talk about turning your mic on rather than being mute. Yeah, I cannot. We're not going to be ableist. We're going to. <laughs> you guys, you I guys learn from AW on a daily basis. I love them. Okay. Thank you for that reminder because I had the headset going and then clicked off and I didn't realize both really does matter. So, anyway, <laughs> what was coming to mind for me as I was listening to this conversation and, you know, just feeling into this information. Um, you know what just came up just from a, like I think it's that soul space is of course we are and what comes up when we think about you know the earth you know the space of our being being connected through this human genome being a part of the earth and all of it being interconnected why what I what I believe has happened is as we have moved into this colonial space that disconnection has been such a disruption that has affected our genome and uh, had, has us acting in ways that is not like ourselves. And what, what I take when we think about myself in my, my blackness, mm. in, in my wanting to know 
where my where I come from. I, I feel into this ancestral memory. And mm-hmm. I know it's an epigenetic memory of something that my my ancestry has not known for a very long time. And yet I feel it. And that's why when we are having this conversation, I was so interested. I've been reading in and listening and watching some of your uh, work in the last uh, day, actually. I really sat mm-hmm. down and, and watched it. And it it's... It, it makes me go in. It makes me go to that deep space. Mm. And I, it, what what do we offer out or what words would you offer out for those of us who don't have that direct connection and yet the earth, that special, that special link is calling us? Mm. I think that is a brilliant question. And I think mm-hmm. like couching it that way too, because of the forced migration of people is still a diaspora, mm-hmm. right? And that is a really powerful and important idea in terms of thinking about, it's not just shaping our, our genome, our mo'oku ahau and our genealogy, but we have this term we love in Hawaii and it's kavamamua um, kavamahope. And it means walking backwards into the future. And actually we say that all throughout, throughout the Moana culture. So. Tahiti, Marquesa, Samoa, Maori, like we all, we all say this, this term. And I think it's a really important thing to think about. So when we, like, when we think about our radiation and diaspora across the Pacific, if I just focus on uh, island people, we have a founder people who are on va'a, right? They're on boats, they're going, they find a new place. They represent like a fraction of that genomic diversity that existed in the original place or position. That's not so different than a forced migration, no? I mean, very similar. Mm-hmm. Then you have the arrival later of settlers and you get like these population collapses. And so what happens is that population that's made it to Hawaii or you know, really any indigenous community from Hernan Cortez to James Cook, this encounter with colonialism again shapes our genome. And we can see this when we look at the genomes of modern indigenous people, mm-hmm. we can see this decrease in human leukocyte antigen, HLA diversity. So in mm-hmm. that sense, it's like the geography shapes our genome over time. It, it does, we are thine, but so do our encounters with genocide. So do our encounters with, and th- those are like, that means that everybody that's, that's Hawaiian, for example, is a survivor of that event. It also means that the way we attenuate inflammation, which is the root cause of common complex disease, from everything from heart disease to cancer to um, any, you know, insulin sensitivity, COVID-19, all of these things are a reflection of our history. Now, our methods are getting so sensitive at identifying these things that it's a matter of maybe asking ethical questions and saying, maybe we need more people from our communities to ask the hard questions, to build these and and help prioritize these scientific questions and iteratively kind of co-design and co-partner with the communities that we come from. Because the truth is these are hard questions to ask. Mm -hmm. Like, Like I think in our lifetimes, we will be able to determine what the impact on people's health is of the transatlantic slave trade. And that is not a question for me to ask, though. 
right? And I and I don't think that that like that positionality, like when I started this job as a professor, someone told me, you know, we think it's weird that you're Hawaiian and you would want to work with Hawaiian communities. That's not objective. And I had to fall back for a second. I was like, I'm really shocked that you would ask that some that anybody would say that to you, you know. But that is how, like, that is the status quo and how brainwashed people are in academia. Like, that is how few people from our communities make it into these leadership positions to be primary investigators for these major projects. These people are so not in tune with being the, like, they work with, the, like, Margaret Mead or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she's not Simone. That's why she had all these dumb ideas, right? <laughs> Right. Like, think about it like that would never, you know, there's just tremendous insight that our people have when we work with our communities. One, if you fuck up, you can't go home for Christmas. You can't go home for the holiday. You're already home. Yeah. You know what I, you know what I mean? Like there's 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 like um, a kuleana, like an obligation to your people and our health and all these other things. But also it's like ensuring that the questions we ask are prioritized by our communities. I think uh, I think we're getting there, and I think the way that we're interpreting the data is so much more advanced too, mm-hmm. you know. And we're just getting started, mm-hmm. so it's going to be a beautiful future. But uh, you know, but I think that these questions aren't aren't easy to ask, you know. So uh, mm-hmm. you talk about just so stories, mm. um, Rudyard Kipling stories, but then you apply them to the scientific process, and that's kind of what this is making me think is. You know, because we come up with these ideas or we mm-hmm. like scientists, colonial scientists come up with these ideas and who is in the room shapes very much what questions are being asked. Can you unpack that a little bit about the just so story so that people know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a um, that's that's a great like it's a child story from Roger Kipling, Kipling who like if, if people who are listening don't know you, maybe you heard of the Jungle Book or you heard of uh the book Kim, um, some of these old school, you know, they're like pretty colonial. They take place in India mostly. Um, but he wrote this child's book for his daughter. And he, the book kind of has these funny stories where they explain like, why is the elephant's nose so long? Well, the elephant's nose is so long because it got tugged on for 30 minutes by an alligator when he was trying to drink some water or whatever, right? But what, what these two scientists in the I want to say late seventies, uh, Peter, no. Yeah. Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewinton. What they did is they said, well, these, these ideas are used to explain evolutionary things. Like they're, they're adapt, they're what they call adaptionist narratives. So it's like, I can use an evolutionary narrative to explain innateness. And this gets really dangerous and can become super racist because it's used to justify shitty correlative science. So, mm-hmm. so, and I had this uh, mentor and he would always tell me, you know, tell me two gene, any two genes in the genome, there's like 20,000 genes and buy me a whiskey and I'll tell you a story. And what he was trying to say was I can make a, st- a correlative story about anything statistically, but that doesn't mean that it like mechanistically is true. So what you see is people invoking adaptionism, natural selection and evolution to justify really racist science that discredits the accomplishments of indigenous people, for example. 
So one of the examples I love to give is this thrifty gene narrative where they're like, oh, you know, and you know, we know we, we know we're not dummies. We know we have a problem with type two diabetes and obesity in our community. We also know that Hawaiian people are really big. Samoan people are really big. Um, we're all big, but part of it, it has to do with, uh, you know, many different factors. Part of it is colonialism because you took away our access to the reefs and our rights around land stewardship and hunting and fishing and all these other things. So when you replace those traditional food ways with spam, white rice and soy sauce, what do you think you get? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you say that the reason we have this problem is, is a genetic innateness that comes from our diaspora, that's racist, right? So why do those narratives get perpetuated in really popular scientific journals? They end up in the media and it comes down to discrediting our voyaging accomplishments. Because if you've ever talked to any navigator, they'll tell you these, these boats were filled to the brim with sweet potato, taro, pigs, chicken, all kinds of things. There was never a problem with like scarcity of calories. So how would we develop a problem where we become sensitive to or have problems with hypercaloric storage in a modern day setting. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And and so like it gets it gets wound up and and entangled into these racist narratives in the way that they describe maybe genome sequence data. What we do see with this mutation in this gene, it's called CREBRF. And it's privately found in the Pacific amongst Hawaiians. Uh, we've even found it in um, the Chamorro and Guam. And what we see with it is it's actually associated with muscle density. And there was a follow-up study, I believe in Aotearoa showing that Polynesian rugby players of, of you know, of, of Polynesian or Maori, Maori ancestry have a higher frequency of this mutation. So it's more like a tall, dark and handsome mutation that has to do with BMI <laughs> and athletic performance than it is like a thrifty mutation that predisposes us to obesity. But do you see how different it is when I'm just choosing that, that mm -hmm. as an example, we could do this with sickle cell. Yep. We could be like, oh, it makes people from equatorial Africa weak. Or we could say, no, this is, this is actually truly remarkable in the way that how many people have died from malaria, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's really about, it's really about how you interpret the mutations and what they actually do. But if you mm -hmm. don't have mechanistic evidence, then why are you making up and spinning these bullshit narratives that discredit our accomplishments as people? Mm -hmm. I, I'm really just fascinated with this conversation and, and where you're going with this, because one of the pieces I were, was reading when you were speaking talks about how most of the studies, when we look at the genome, when we look at, you know, breaking down the genetic understanding of things really has not done, has not been done on um, indigenous and people of color. And so, you know, um, hearing uh, you break that down, because we too have supposedly a predisposition for type two diabetes mm -hmm. and high blood pressure. Um, it, it gives that different perspective and I remember once, I don't know, oh, I remember hearing Oprah speak about um, that in the Black community. And I don't know who she, she had been speaking to a scientist of some sort. And I remember some of the information that came out was the one of the reasons why from a Black 
um, standpoint, we seem to have had a propensity because we, even in the middle passage, why we survived some of the the challenges was because we had uh, an ability to take in salt, yeah. our ability to hold salt in our thing, which does lead to the type two diabetes or the high blood pressure. But because we had this um, mutation, it actually was one of those things that afforded us to survive the atrocities of that passage because we were able to, to absorb um and, and survive less or our salt intakes kept our water levels or our electrolytes higher, something along right. those lines. Uh, don't quote me. It was a very <laughs> long time ago that I heard that, but I remember that stuck to me because it's what you speak about. It's the way that the perspectives are put forward to us. Mm. Right. And, you know, normally when we put it that way, it's almost, I've always seen it or the, the, the system puts those those narratives out to us to keep us feeling less than that somehow, yeah. right? Somehow that structurally our genetic or our genomes, our makeup is not as, um, you know, valuable or as put together as some. And when we then talk about this idea that it has not, we haven't even been studied in the same way. Mm. How, how does those two things play off of each other, right? Yes. Right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, so first and foremost, I'm so glad you mentioned that, that, mm-hmm. that it's like we're taking, a, pardon the pun, but it's a minority of the data. If it's 90% of genome-wide studies, they've mostly included people of Western European mm-hmm. ancestry. So you're making all these inferences and narrativizing data you know, less than 1% of these studies have included indigenous people. Very small percentages have included individuals of of African ancestry. And that's a continent. I want to put some things into context. It's like, that is the origin of mankind. We spent more time there than anywhere else on planet Earth. It has more genetic diversity, languages, cultural diversity, food, culture. I mean, it is heritage. It's, it's, uh, so to reduce it again as a monolith to one continent is is nuts, uh, one. And then and then we have all of these other conversations that go around there. And so your point about the the salt slavery hypertension hypothesis, mm-hmm. which is a very which is a very interesting idea. Again, it's a narrative that's popularized, but but again, it's not been taken to task in a way where it's either been proven or disproven because we mm-hmm. don't have enough data for that so of course when you build narratives it's going to be it's not going to be in service of a community you're not going to ask questions about how much stress do these people have every day is that a factor what about people's diets what about people's access to healthy food and all of these other kind of metrics that are probably more informative and predictive of people's health so and i'm not saying that genomics doesn't play a role it does but again the the way that you we create narratives around it now then let's look at the other side of the coin because this is the most brutal part 95 percent of clinical trials feature white people Mm -hmm. so we're not even designing drugs for our people in the way that we we're like designing drugs for one population and then giving it to other people or i worked in blood transfusion research for uh for a while 
and we would have 90% of the people who donate blood are white. And then, and then the, the kind of inverse of that, you know, sickle cell patients are black. Yes. Do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's a, it's a stark contrast. We're literally giving somebody a temporary organ. We're infusing them with blood that includes all types of diversity of RNA from one other. You've seen what mRNA can do now, haven't mm-hmm. you? Yep. <laughs> now we're taking RNA from one person and giving it to another, and we're not really thinking about what the consequences of, of that are. So I'm just saying we, we've not really thought everything through uh, in, in a more thoughtful way because we haven't had the attention to detail with population-specific medicine. And I'm hoping that over the next few decades, uh, that becomes something that's really important. See that that I love that so much. That really resonates with me because my bro, my brother in law mm. actually ha- doesn't have sickle cell, mm. but he carries the sickle cell trait, yes. and he also carries the thalassemia trait. Oh, and and interestingly, we were just together. It's our um, it's our Thanksgiving here in in Canada, mm. and we were just down at. I was just over at their house. And he's having an episode where, yeah, he's having a sickle cell episode. And it's, you know, he's had several over the years. He's, you know, he's been in our family for 30 years now. I can't even believe Mm -hmm. that. But, um, we, you know, he's been around. And what we've noticed is my my niece carries the the sickle cell trait and she gets mild symptoms Mm. of, she gets very mild, like sometimes, you know, the fingers tingle. She'll, yeah. she'll have a stressful event and, and you know, really be in pain at the extremities and some of the same things that her father has, but not to the same degree. And, and it's interesting when you bring this up, it, it, it tells me how little we understand because technically he doesn't have the disease and yet he gets exactly the symptoms and it has to been treated in the same ways, even though they're not exactly sure how and why it's happening. And I bring that up because it's exactly what you're saying, that there's, there's the studies don't extend far oh. enough, right? And while there we manage it, it's, it's almost been like, I've, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but when, when uh, the doctors that have been treating him for a long time get around him, he's been like a test subject. Because yep. it's sort of a, a unique case and it's been trial and error. You know, they've tried different things to see what's worked. And thank goodness, I mean, he's he, we can get him through them. But it's it was something that struck me that it's a unique space and not very much is known about how to make it work for him. So they, you know, throw things at it and it's hope it's been it sticks mm-hmm. so far. Right. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, you know, things get even more complex when you're, you come from a place like Hawaii. They showed in the census data that we are the most diverse state, state in the United States of America. <laughs> and we, I mean, and, that, and, by, and that's like a long shot. And also we have the highest percentage of mixed ancestry people. And it's been like that for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that that means that things get a little more complex and that we need to really think about what the future of medicine is going to look like, especially if it's predictive and preventative. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just thinking it's not that long ago that people were saying that indigenous people were genetically predisposed to alcoholism. I remember hearing oh, yeah. that as a kid. And I think 
there was a brochure had just come out not that long ago um, about some Cree guides. It was a, a it was a, a fishing camp in northern I think it was Manitoba. The, not to give alcohol to the guides because they're genetically predisposed to alcoholism. And it was like these ideas and they take root. They do. They take root and they don't go anywhere because they keep medicine, you know, Western medicine, Western scientists, they keep looking for the problem in us. Absolutely. There's something wrong with our genetics, something wrong with our makeup. You got to fix us. There's nothing wrong with colonialism and with the imposition of, you know, this change in diet. And I mean, one of the things in this book that they talk about is the salmon run and how it's gone. It's 4% of what it had. Wow. And that's, you know, so that's a significant change in their diet, which leads to a significant change in their health. Absolutely. You know, because like you said, now they're eating spam and flour. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think that's so fascinating. It's like we it's kind of like a slippery slope sometimes, though, because we can point to actual examples where where we are. I mean, and sickle cell is such a great example. And so is high elevation adaption and all of these incredible ways in which we are a reflection of the Aina, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I tell my colleagues, we're going to empirically measure the impact of colonialism on the genome. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like that. We don't like that. You know, and you have to think about it. I mean, it's, it's about how we choose to, I mean, I obviously like I often do that to make people feel uncomfortable because I want them to know how we've felt going through these medical schools and education programs throughout the whole time, because now we're wielding the power of being able to prioritize the question. And that's unique now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it feels good, but, but, but also, but also, um, we want it to have impact, you know, I don't, we don't want to tell people where they came from. That's not mm-hmm. important to us. That's not a question we prioritize, but if it has a role in thinking about how we can predict and prevent disease or create treatments that speak to our history, then that's important. And I, and I think, I think we're getting there. And um, yeah, we just, you know, we need to, we need more students that like, and we're the prototype. Wait till you see the next generation, man. They're like, yeah, well, I know, um, you know, we we often talk about, you know, studying, you you know, Carol often talks about epigenetics, you know, Mm -hmm. studying the long-term impacts of trauma. And and I've heard a few people asking, well, where's the long-term studies of uh, impact of affluence or influence on, you know, impact of greed on some of these ultra wealthy families? What, how does that affect their genome? Like, are they genetically predisposed to being selfish assholes? What's going on? (laughs) Regarding the epigenetic stuff, we have a new project that we're working on. And <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think we're going to get get to the point of point point in position where we have tools that are sensitive enough to, you know, ask answer the questions that we that we have and provide solutions uh, that might result in better better treatments for our people, right? Um, and one of them is the effect of testing nuclear bombs in the Pacific. And this is, you know, uh, my auntie, who is a female Native Hawaiian colonel, uh, she's retired now, uh, amazing person. Uh, But she spent a lot of time 
in various places. And I mean, the things that we've, we, you know, she's, she's told me about and the types of health infrastructure that exists and the, the rates of different types of cancer that are telltale signatures of mm-hmm. nuclear radiation exposure. I mean, it is just astonishing what you'll see in, in the Marshall Islands and how Henry Kissinger is like, ah, oh, 50,000 people, that's just a t- statistic, who cares? Or, or Jacques Chirac reinstating nuclear testing programs in uh, French Polynesia or you know, among uh, the Tuamotu's island archipelagos there in Moruroa and the rates of cancer we're seeing. And these are telltale signatures, you know, the, the thyroid cancers, the lymph node cancers, the leukemias. And I guess the question is, one, can you detect that? Is it, it going to be a signature of, in the genome that is independent of inherited cancer? Is it baked into the genome in a transgenerational way, which would be epigenetic inheritance, which in my opinion is straight up genocide. Mm-hmm. There should be real reparations for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then can we design better types of chemotherapy that speak to that? Because if it is has a unique architecture and it is a unique signature, then we need better drugs for our people and the French people need to pay for it. Uh, and those are the facts. And so, and so here we are now uh, approaching new questions that we can use these tools for, ones that allow us to move forward in terms of medical advancement, but also in terms of our goals of achieving justice. And I am so stoked about these new projects because I feel like I was born for this shit, yes. but also, also because we're, we're capable and our people deserve better. You know, and I think that's going to inspire other scientists who are way more brilliant than than I am to hmm. to come up with 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 solutions. But this these are some of the new projects that we're working on. And I'm not afraid of the French government. They know what they did. They tested 193 nuclear bombs over uh, from 1966 to 1996. Think about how recent that is. Wow. And then they had the nerve to name their new hospital after Jacques Chirac. And that was when I was like, in Papete, in Tahiti. That's such a slap mm-hmm. in the face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from my point of view, and these are my brothers and sisters, you know, those are my, my ancestors, my kupuna. Yes. So mm-hmm. you got to understand when you test nuclear bombs in the Pacific, it doesn't just sit there. I mean, you have ocean currents, wind currents. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the stuff we're hearing about. So, and those happen to be, this is the most important part. These happen to be questions that that community has prioritized as far as health issues go. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Yeah, and, it's, and, and that's so important because they, they co- people come in, they have these ideas, they wanna, you know, you know like colonial, you know, they see the problem, they're going to fix it, they're going to, you, you know, they're, and, and then they're, you know, they're doing their studies and their, you, you know, their outcome measures and all the rest of it. And there's no, there's no relationship, there's no relationship building at the front end, any relationship that they start is just so that they can come in and help and so that they can come in and fix this. And it's like, they keep doing this. And over, over, things over. just keep getting worse from our point of view, but then that just keeps clearing more land from their point of view. So I understand why. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I think it gives a new meaning to that saying the road to hell was paved with good intentions. Yeah. Because I very often feel that, you know, it's too, we, we see how there seems to be a playbook and the playbook shows up over and over and over in any indigenous, any, you know, native communities of, of any origin around the world. And that idea that the Western colonial system has to come in and fix us, right? Right. All normally has that underlying agenda where, you know, they're, they're coming to help, but then, you know, it was like a backhanded help because we're, <laughs> we're always, you know, ass out, pardon my French, after yeah. they leave, you know, especially with the French and any of the other colonials that have come in and created the systems to which we're now having to um, dig out and um, build our resiliency up against. And that's, I think, also a, another part of this that I'd love to see or hear what your thoughts on about it is the remarkable way that we have been able to adjust and adapt. Mm. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I really think that that's something that has been so powerful amongst people. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I'm uh, my mom is such a genius. She's like the Hawaiian MacGyver, you know, like she just really figures out ways to engineer all kinds of systems with limited resources. Mm -hmm. And we live in a pretty uh, rural, isolated place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm on the phone with her and she's like, oh, yeah, the truck door, it's not coming for three months. It's on back order or this generator part. It's not it's not coming, but we did this and so on and so forth. And you see how much ingenuity and genius exists in our communities in all these beautiful ways. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. Uh Unless, you know, things became very differently. Now, when we contrast like where we live with other areas where there's like hotel and tourism infrastructure, I mean, the things that they need come like, you know, agriculture from the mainland, um, protein from the mainland, other things. So you just see this contrast and like, what about when we need medical things in our community in the outer islands? Why are you prioritizing capitalism and profit over our community's health just over and over and over and over again. And I can point to our toxic relationship with tourism throughout this pandemic because we had an opportunity to push the reset button, right? We had an opportunity to reform and recalibrate and we didn't do it. Yeah. And that's because we have too many corrupt politicians that are, you know what I mean? I'm going to call it like I see it. Mm -hmm. I just feel like we had the opportunity to move forward with other forms, other just develop forms of our circular economy Absolutely. in an island system that has all forms of renewable energy. I mean, the island that we live on alone has 11 out of 13 biomes on planet Earth, one of the most biodiverse places on the planet Earth. So why are we the extinction capital of the world? Why are we the invasive species capital of the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, why do you want to build a golf course here? Mm -hmm. You know, that's stupid. That's not even a sport. You don't even sweat when you play that. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? So, like, that we, we are very familiar with all these. I mean, the yeah. forms of exploitation and the forms of, of, of genius and ingenuity and futurism. You know, I think that Hawaii is a really incredible place for that. 
Mm-hmm. And we will continue, and whether it's agriculture or ranching or energy sustainability solutions, uh, oceanic sciences, geology, like anything. That's why all these people want to come to our islands to make hay. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we know that we've been we've been. How, how do you think we found these islands? Science, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, like when you think, like you had talked earlier about you know kind of about the pacific diaspora and and you know kind of traveling those are some pretty huge distances requiring some pretty significant knowledge of not just celestial navigation but winds and ocean currents and who else is out there and things that want to eat you and making sure that you have enough food (laughs) you know and who are you going to call for help when you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean you got to be pretty resourceful and like we don't we don't often think about that and yeah. that's like you know we're so impressed with you know Columbus right it was just Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day whatever um you know and woo you know we crossed the ocean whatever in you know 1492 you know and, and that was such a major accomplishment but y'all were all over the Pacific a long time before it. that <laughs> so you preach it to the choir, you know, <laughs> honestly, uh, I, I just wrote this piece for um, Indigenous Peoples Day, Indigenous Futures Day. And yes. I told you earlier before it's late. Yeah. So it'll be out in like the next 24 hours. But it's about many of those ideas. I mean, we had all of these we had and have mm-hmm. all of these super complex. Uh, I mean, if you ever get to work or meet some of these master navigators, I mean, they are they are treasures like Hawaiian treasures, you know, I mean, they're not all Hawaiian, you know, but they're, they're throughout the Pacific. But I mean, you're talking about bird migration patterns for land finding birds, the green turquoise glint on the bottom of a cloud that lets you identify a lagoon from 300 miles away. I mean, you work with these people and you understand that it's humbling, you know, uh, people that, that are, that are operating and have that skill set. And yeah, I mean, we we discovered we it was the fastest in in less than a thousand years, our kupuna traversed a territory or space of the space of Eurasia, and it wasn't just unidirectional, right? It's like an oceanic superhighway, complex dynamic routes back and forth, and um, and I think we're still only beginning to understand what how truly remarkable that level of travel and comfort on the ocean was. And then when you talk about like being in tune with the Aina and how the ocean shapes your genome, I mean, we're talking about people that really understood navigation. Uh, And if you're ever out there in the middle of the ocean and it's not at night, because at night it gives you a little comfort and you can use the Milky Way, Mm -hmm. right? But but I mean, during the day, it's just like overwhelmingly confusing. But over there with, with uh, you know, the Inuit and the Yupik, that's very similar. I've been been to that part of town and I'm like, oh, it's white everywhere. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah. oh, you know, all so that there's snow. It's, it keeps going. <laughs> I've been up in the Halloween and it's uh, scary. up on an island. That's and- scary. You don't want to leave like my my son lived um, my son lived there for eighteen months, 
and he would like to go hunting out on the on the tundra and he was warned don't go too far like make sure that you can keep certain landmarks in sight because you get past the wrong hill and you're done you can walk for three days and you won't find anything. <laughs> so, you, you know, to navigate that is just, re- and yet they navigated it. Circumpolar navigation, yeah. there, you, you know, traveling across, it, it only looks far apart. And then you tip the earth on its side and you can see how connected those circumpolar people are and how actually close together they are. And we forget, you know, we, we don't think about it like that because we're so used to looking at the globe in a particular way. And it's a very Eurocentric way of looking at it. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. But I saw these little maps, um, these wooden carved maps, and they were made, uh, I forget, I want to say it was Yupik, but it might have been Inuit. But it was uh, used by people who are hunting. And they use it as a way to, like, understand the coastline in which they're cruising. Oh, neat. I forget what it's called. Yeah, I'll try to find it. I'll send it to you guys afterwards. Yeah, people listening are probably it's called this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember what you were talking about. (laughs) I love that so much. You see, what what I what really comes to me through this whole course of the conversation is what how brilliant we all are, Mm. and. And when we are given the opportunity to stand and feel into and create our own truths, it it shifts this enormously, we shift the space. We we really get these new innovative, um, which really are connecting back into the old ways anyway. But mm. we can we can get this beautiful space of melding the old into the new mm. and refreshing, allowing ourselves to remember what I think we've already known. And and when I hear, you know, that they're they're now starting to study the how how people were navigating the seas and, and that, you know, it was like a super highway. And mm. once again, what, what keeps resounding in my head, I always say the ancestors sit on my shoulders mm. and um, I'm hearing somebody going, of course it was, mm. you know, sometimes we are so removed because of the view that we sit in right from this colonial um, Western viewpoint that it always was. And that we're not just talking about like a period of time. We're talking about real time people who were living their lives, yes. people who were, you know, creating these experiences, you know, determining their destinies and, and, the, and the laneways of the oceans. And I think it's so important to bring that piece of the humanity back, understanding that uh, Mother Earth, that Gaia, whatever we want to call this space, was connected to that space, connected to that being. And I think that's what innately we bring Mm. if that makes sense oh absolutely it makes sense Mm -hmm. i i was reading this thing recently about uh the way that whale bladders are used to make all of the the skin for the different kayak Mm -hmm. they did like this mathematical approximation of like what would be the perfect aerodynamic or hydrodynamic dimensions of this 
watercraft and what would it look like if you were to like optimize it mm-hmm. and the i mean over time first nations people hit it on the nose it's absolutely perfectly engineered it's light it's packable and the material i mean you speak to like using all of the materials of the creature that you're honoring you know and that bladder is the perfect material talking about material sciences i mean it's lightweight it's transparent and almost almost camouflaged mm-hmm. and it is impermeable and it is the same exact thing they use for their parka and i got i was thinking about that i couldn't stop thinking about it because it is so perfectly optimized over time and that it speaks to the local complexity of that environment and this is the problem with a lot of capitalism too it's like we started this indigenous futures institute here and the whole goal is to seek that local complexity in every technology that we engineer everything that we create should be in context to that environment just like mm-hmm. our genomes just like that parka just like that the va'a the way that our ancestors over a long ass period of time finally figured out that if you put two holes next to each other you can go anywhere in the world to the most mm. remote islands in the world if you displace weight and water and make it hydrodynamic that way and look at all of the models they use for like the america's cup for all these like carbon fiber they're all catamarans and trimarans like that's our intellectual property and larry mm-hmm. ellison better recognize that and pay my people Mm-hmm. because you you know what i mean you're talking about these are the fastest boats in the world that's our stuff mm-hmm. so like but i just look to all of the ingenuity and context of the environment and i'm like man i can't stop my mouth is just like amazing 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 so i just you know basically want to spend the rest of my life looking for more of that and it's everywhere yeah and then what capitalism does though is it takes that one particular model and it then it just wants to replicate it all over the world and that's not how it works works, here and let's just do this everywhere let's just manufacture mass manufacture this Mm -hmm. everywhere and that's i love what you're talking about with that institute let's look at this local diversity let's build that and then look look at that local diversity and build that as opposed to just let's just you know now we're just going to scatter it all over the world and everybody's got to do it like that yes that's our EK. Like I was thinking about this new initiative in Vancouver. Like if you're listening, all my indigenous peeps in Vancouver and you're doing that four block stretch and you're the architect and engineering people on that job. And this is some serious land back stuff. So what they do with it is the most important thing. Cause you have to show the rest of the world that you're the leader in this shit. Mm-hmm. Do not borrow ideas from other places in the world. Make sure that that speaks to your heritage your accomplishments your people's engineering and mm. make it the most be- and it will be perfect but if you try to borrow ideas oh, we're going to put hanging gardens from uh india these bridges and that no that's that's their thing in kerala that's mm-hmm. that right you know what i'm saying like it's a trap so <laughs> I, know, I, I, I love i love this so much because i think you're right and i i I think what you're saying too is, is it's so timely and it's almost imperative that we hear that because mm. the earth, as we are moving into this next phase environmentally, yes, we have seen that, that idea of just kind of taking some, you know, 
status quo prototype sort of thing and dumping it here and dumping it here there doesn't work well. No. And I to really for us to look at this and I think shift some of the tides, we're going to have to get creative, innovative in so much of understanding each ecosystem and, and this idea of the biodiversity of spaces and working out uniquely, how are we going to be able to affect it to slow down what, you know, is going on right now? Agreed. This is a very, right? Like this is a time where we really have to bring that front and center. And I think these are some of the conversations that I haven't heard really happening, at least from the governmental, you know, whoever is in charge spaces. They're just talking about cutting emissions. But I, I think that idea of narrowing it down has to come front and center. Agreed. Trudeau has to take the colonial wax out his ears and pay attention. Uh, Listen yeah, to right? all the geniuses in your community. Lit, like pay attention. I think yeah. it's so interesting too, because in Hawaii, you know, we, we grew up with this. Not only was our genome shaped by this ingenuity, but we watched this like dialectically intertwined phenomena. So we have this ahupua'a system in Hawaii. So from the top of the, the Malka all the way down to the ocean, we have this, this like sustainable gardening gravity system. And, wow. and the way it works is like you have fresh water at the top that leads to, you know, your um, sweet potato. God, people in Hawaii are going to kill me. Uh, sweet potato patch. And then it, you know, goes from the sweet potato patch and all the phytonutrients from there go into this next garden and then all the phytonutrients from there go into the lo'i, which is the taro patch. And then those, then that bacteria goes into the fish pond where you've created this, you know, artificial fishery environment right on the water. And you've stacked stones around so you get like the fish growing and eating in the mangroves and then it cannot go out the hole that it came in because it's too big so it can't even get to the reef and it's this complete then you take the leftover fish and you bring it to the top for fertile you get what i'm saying like it's a complete circular economic system it's engineered for it's invisible Okay, that's why John Muir arrives in fucking, excuse me, he, he arrives in Yosemite and he's like, wow, this place is pristine. And, da, da, da. and these people are like, bro, we've been cultivating this <laughs> for thousands of years. Right. So it's, that's, right. It's the, that's our, our technology systems are invisible. They have been in, designed to be infinity loops. Right. We talk about the parka. The, I, I, I mean, I could break down any one of those technologies and show you why it's an invisible infinity infinity loop. Let's contrast that with capitalism and optimizing every single system for exponential growth and profit. Uh, if it's going this way, that's not good. It needs to no. go this way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it, if it's not working within the circular system, and then you have all these other people, who's the lady who's talking about donut economics? It's like, okay, you stole our IP. Maybe they're going to give you a MacArthur genius grant, another one that should have went to an indigenous person. You know, what can you do? But I think that they that a lot of these large institutions are starting to get hip to it and realize that 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 they the things that were invisible to them are starting to take shape. You know, what what's in the dark always comes to light. Yeah. Uh, and and I find that interesting, though, is that you know, just based on what we know uh, Western culture to do, 
is that a space that, you know, we want them to know in that way. I think for me, what, what comes up is making sure we stay front and center and that we're ready to snatch back. <laughs> yeah. Right. right? The was- IP, the IP thing. I mean, I think we really need to get in. I'm, we've started a whole, uh, kind of indigenous ventures focus on intellectual property because we have to position our communities because that is a great way. And we've started a number of different companies that are really focused on that mechanism. It's like benefit sharing. How do we bring the money back to the people? So let's like, for example, let's say you have a a community that's adapted to high elevation in the Himalayas. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to pick them. And we find a genetic mutation that allows us to expedite the development of a new drug to make the next, I don't know, Viagra. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. High altitude Viagra. High, but, okay. <laughs> but I mean, I'm saying this and it sounds like science fiction, but this is happening now. Yes. There are multiple companies that are interested in this. Okay. There's a, right. Okay. Because they know that who did all the, the legwork for you evolution and if mm-hmm. i can zero in on a on a molecule that allows me to understand how to make a new drug i will do that and i will patent that information and i will put that drug on the market now what this company variant bio is doing is they're saying no actually we give x percentage of the royalties and intellectual property to the community in which it's derived they have been they have a benefit sharing clause okay and a large portion of that money goes back into select programs that are involved in cultural revitalization practices, education, healthcare, all the drugs that are created in partnership with that community, they're either given to the community for free or at cost. So none of these like vertex drug, America's the worst. The drug hits the market, it's $300,000 a year and you can only get access to it through your insurance company. So they're like disrupting the whole relationship. Now here's the beauty of it. It's because these companies, if they make money on that, this is the ex- they can buy back land, the exact same land that shaped their genome in the first place. And that's a circular economy there. So we just have to think about re-engineering all of these heavy or criminal industries, whether it's big pharma, uh, any sort of energy or resource-based company. Yeah. You know, we're big into indigenous data sovereignty. Right. We've been talking about all of these opportunities and just recognizing data as a resource, just like timber, just like oil, just like diamonds, any rare earth mineral. You know, and I know that the largest companies in the world are all based on generating, mining, modeling, mm-hmm. and using data, big data as a resource. And it's a form of economic value. It is the form surpassing oil in 2018 as mm. the most important valuable commodity on planet earth so why aren't our people getting a cut of that you've touched something i would love to hear more about that um maybe sending out some research just at the sense or understanding of intellectual property i would love to hear more and how you know because that to me now now we're talking about a real way a tangible fundamental way to shift power Mm. And I think that that one will speak. It speaks so loudly and in a language that the capitalist system would understand. And it, and I, I think if we that that's something powerful to spread the word on. I'm going to say we're starting a kind of a, a, a indigenous intellectual property patent troll entity. 
because yeah. we have to play offense. It seems like often, more often than not, we're reacting to things or we're writing like these policy pieces or uh, dare I say it, ethics pieces where we're trying to get people the playbook. And then, then like a lot of our colleagues, they end up kind of window dressing and referencing our paper, but they don't actually do the things we're telling them to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm relatively young. So I'm observing this. I'm seeing who's referencing our papers and seeing why. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. We're about to make technologies now. We're about to make mm-hmm. deterrent technologies, safeguarding technologies, mm-hmm. and counter technologies. Because we we have to get in line and be in control. And, you know, a lot of the things we're doing with like native biodata consortium, we recognize what was Ford's secret sauce when he created the Model T, vertical integration. They controlled everything from the rubber that they extracted in the Amazon to the ball bearings, to the engine manufacturing, everything on the manufacturing line, they had complete vertical control of. Our communities need, ready, and not limited to satellites so we can decrease the digital divide, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Our own cloud-based web services so that we can process our own information and safeguard it, Mm -hmm. right? Bio repositories store our genomes. We have to, I mean, we need, we need infrastructure and we need people to stop investing in these bunk, just criminal and dare I say it, mediocre with a lack of innovation uh, Mm -hmm. infrastructures that already exist and invest in our people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Oh, I love this yeah. so much. Um, I'm wow. This this to me is a conversation that I would really like. Even just to take take this part of it and and really <laughs> go in. Like I I really enjoy this because seriously, I think you're it, that to me is a real practical um, revolutionary idea and not just an idea you guys are putting it into practice and it speaks to me because we often talk in the black community about doing very much the same thing building our own infrastructure and and talking about claiming these pieces and i think you know sharing that information is powerful because this is the way we can exist in the system and claim it back for ourselves and reshape it because it's it's literally a monster. It's like with eight heads. And these yeah. are the ways we can cut off some of the heads and maybe they don't grow back, you know? So I would love for us to maybe do this as another conversation. Like, wow, yeah. very well, interesting. <clears throat> but we talk so much about presence, right? About, pre- about mm. presence and being visible in things, but presence is not power. No. We can dominate a room, right? Like we can have like the whole faculty you know, be indigenous people, but that doesn't mean that we have any power over mm-hmm. the knowledge that we're creating or the things that we're putting out there because somebody is still controlling what papers get published and somebody, you know, and, and the funding for the project. Some, you know, so we can have all the presence in the world. That doesn't mean that we have power <laughs> over the ability to control our own genetic material, you know, yes. goes, you know, that goes out there or what happens with you know, like we were talking about very early on, you know, the stories that get told about the stuff that, you, you know, about the things that are already out there and the meaning that gets invested in that stuff. And then how that drives medical research and they keep looking for answers in places that only wind up, that only support the colonial system. So Love it. this is a really interesting 
an important application of the things that of you know of the things that we started off talking about. Yeah, I, I mean, we're just getting started with building a lot of these infrastructures and companies and training the next generation of people so that they can fill these roles and who knows what amazing ideas they're going to have. I mean, we, we're we we're holding it down, I mean, in the health and genomics space, but I think there are just other, there are other people, I think, that are really thinking about ideas in, in different directions and um, I'm looking forward to learning from them. I mean, a lot, and a lot of this applies to other things too, like yeah. repatriation of ancestors in museum settings and artifacts. Well, and we just talked with Paulette Steves about that. It's about that. Yep. Oh, Malanui for the opportunity, you know, for so long, we've not been able to make decisions or have major leadership roles. I appreciate yeah. you guys having me on here and, uh, the conversation and I'd love to come back sometime, so. Oh, oh, awesome. consider it done. <laughs> we are going to arrange that to happen. Consider it done. This was phenomenal. I really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so, thank you so much. I really, yeah. this, this was so interesting. Thank you so much. It was, bye. Bye, You can find Medicine for the Resistance on Facebook. You can also find us on our Substack medicineforTheResistance.substack.com, where you're able to listen to episodes and read transcripts. You can also support the podcast and so much more by going to patreon.com slash payyourrent. You can follow Patty on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S and at donish.ca, D-A-A-N-I-S dot C-A. You can follow Carrie at K-E-R-R-Y-O-S c-i-t-y that's curiosity and find her online at carrygoring.com our theme is fearless